Hey guys, Anthony here. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Common Sense Finance. On this episode, we are going to go over the fall, the collapse of Bear Stearns. Bear Stearns is one of the biggest investment banks in the United States leading up to 2008. And they fell victim to what a number of other banks fell victim to. And that was just financial mismanagement in regards to collateralized debt obligations and mortgage-backed securities, everything like that. But specifically with Bear Stearns, it's an interesting case because one, it involves hedge funds. Hedge funds have been a topic of conversation recently, you know, with the whole GameStop and AMC debacle. And it's interesting to touch on because Bear Stearns was probably the first domino to fall in terms of banks realizing tremendous losses in 2008. It was very interesting to, to research myself, and I hope you guys get some enjoyment out of this as well. But before we do that, if you're listening to this on a podcast app, I would really appreciate if you can subscribe to Common Sense Finance and drop a five-star review down below if you're on Apple Podcasts. And if you're watching this video, I would really appreciate it if you can like, comment, and subscribe on this video. Now, with that out of the way, let's get into the story of Bear Stearns. So before we get into actual uh, the actual fall of Bear Stearns, we need to talk about the history of hedge funds. In the late 1970s, the landscape of typical commercial and investment banking began to change. The fees for underwriting, a core part of banks' revenue for years, began to decline. As a result, banks began to rely on other practices, namely mergers and acquisitions, leverage buyouts, the securitization of financial instruments, and proprietary trading to generate revenue. By relying on the securitization of financial instruments and proprietary trading, banks needed to raise their levels of capital, which was typically achieved through mergers. These financial firms also look to capitalize on the growing trend of trading. Even to this day, becoming a trader at a large investment bank or financial firm is the ideal career path for many financial professionals. Many traders look to start their careers at investment banks, build a positive reputation for themselves, and then leave the firm to manage their own hedge fund. A hedge fund could implement a number of different investment strategies, which could impact the risk and volatility of the fund. No matter the implemented strategy, the goal of a hedge fund is to provide consistent returns regardless of market performance while reducing risk exposure and preserving capital levels. To lower the risk exposure, many of these funds utilize financial instruments, namely derivatives. They use these instruments to reduce the correlation between their firm and other markets, such as the equity and bond markets. Firm managers want to perform independently from the market, meaning a positive performance regardless of how greater markets perform. Ultimately, these firms prioritize consistent returns over the long term over very high returns, as greater returns would result in greater risk exposure. This leads to one of the greatest benefits of investing in a hedge fund, seeing positive returns in poorly performing markets. In addition to this, there are also the benefits of diversification, not having to time the market, low volatility depending on the investment approach, and the ability for an investor to decide on their investment strategy. In regards to management, individuals who are in charge of hedge funds typically have specialization in a specific market, and they tend to only trade in their area's expertise. It is also worth noting that the hedge fund manager receives performance-based incentives in most instances. With this being the case, some of the brightest minds in the world look to lead their own hedge funds. And this is not only for individuals with a business background. These are for individuals from all walks of life. If you look at STEM majors like from MIT, many of these individuals get recruited into Wall Street to run hedge funds for the biggest hedge funds in the world. Additionally, many managers usually invest their own money into these funds they manage. On one end, investing in their, their own money and receiving performance-based incentives could be seen as a positive. However, 
it should be noted that these tendencies leave the door open for conflicts of interest since managers have the motivation to do well at any cost. This is foreshadowing in regards to Bear Stearns. So while hedge funds were on the rise all over Wall Street, this does not mean they were all successful. In 1994, the most infamous case of a hedge fund failing unfolded. Two Nobel Prize economists created the hedge fund known as long-term capital management. This fund looked to capitalize on the pricing differences between fixed income markets. At first, the fund was very successful, but by 1998, only four years after, long-term capital management saw its demise. The country of Russia defaulted on its sovereign debt, resulting in insurmountable losses for the hedge fund. Creditors began demanding increased cash collateral from long-term capital management, forcing the fund to sell out of positions at tremendous losses, which contributed to a domino effect. The dissolution of the hedge fund re required a multi-bank effort led by the New York Federal Reserve Bank. Although long-term capital management was a complete failure, hedge funds did not cease to exist. In fact, the presence of hedge funds on Wall Street only grew. By the 2000s, many large institutions like state pension funds and prestigious universities would be utilizing hedge funds for their own endowments and their own investments. By this time, a number of large investment banks like Bear Stearns have attempted to capitalize on their growth in usage. Now, let's talk about Bear Stearns starting their own hedge fund. Bear Stearns had the reputation of being somewhat rebellious when compared to other investment banks at the time because they did not support the attempts to rescue long-term capital management. For years, Bear Stearns was led by traders with the most notable being Alan C. Ace Greenberg. By 2007, Greenberg handed the position of leadership over to Jimmy Kane. At that time, Bear Stearns was very successful. From 2005 to 2006, the net income of the company increased 40%, or about $600 million. Guys, over half a billion dollars. That's a lot of money. This increase was largely due to the firm's place as being one of the leaders of trading fixed income securities and asset-backed securities. These securities were under the control of Bear Stearns' investment segment named Bear Stearns Asset Management. They do not score points for creativity with that name. Bear Stearns took the approach of providing the opportunity to many to prove their trading abilities. One of these individuals was named Ralph Chiaffi, who joined the company in 1985. He had a specialization in collateralized debt obligations and asset-backed securities, which were becoming very popular at the time. After demonstrating his ability as a fixed income salesman, Bear Stearns promoted Chiaffi to be in charge of all fixed income institutional sales and he quickly showed that he was not a great manager. One employee described Chiaffi as having adult ADD. He cut deals and forgot to write them down. He was just not a really good manager. So guys, this guy is not a good manager, but you'll see here that it doesn't really matter. Having a poor reputation as a leader, Chiaffi wanted to redeem himself by volunteering to manage a hedge fund. Bear Stearns granted his request, extending him $10 million of their money to manage. At first, he experienced success, resulting in Bear Stearns allowing him to manage another fund with external funding. To help him with this new fund, Chiaffi brought Matthew Tanin on board. At that time, Tanin had been with Bear Stearns for nine years, seven of which were spent structuring collateralized debt obligations. Chiaffi's new hedge fund would be called the High Grade Structured Credit Fund, which would be abbreviated as the High Grade Fund. This fund would be a carry fund which uses short-term financing to purchase long-term securities with higher yields. Thus, Chiaffi's approach was to capitalize on the difference between the interest rates of the short-term repo market and long-term collateralized debt obligations, specifically asset-backed securities. Asset-backed securities typically carried high credit ratings, but they were, in Chiaffi's opinion, priced as if they held A or triple B credit ratings. Chiaffi thought he would be able to capitalize on a pricing inefficiency 
in the mortgage market. This approach did come with risk. With a rise in interest rates, the value of the long-term holdings of the high-grade fund would decline, resulting in negative returns. Additionally, the collateralized debt obligations owned by the fund could see declining credit ratings, which would lead to declining prices of these securities. However, Chaffee was not really worried about interest rates too much. He believed the United States would not change interest rates over the long term. However, declining credit ratings could spook investors from investing in their fund. To prevent this, Chofi promised that the high-grade fund would only invest in collateralized debt obligations with the highest credit ratings, either AAA or AA. Soon after its creation, the high-grade fund had impressive results, 40 months straight with positive returns and a cumulative return of 50% over that time. That's some pretty good growth right there. This success definitely benefited Bear Stearns. Bear Stearns Asset Management realized 20% of all fund profits plus annual fees. With this, the high-grade fund would account for roughly 75% of Bear Stearns Asset Management's total revenue for the fiscal year of 2004-2005. One of the contributing factors to high-grade fund success was the state of the subprime mortgage market. Over the course of the 2000s, the government passed various policies to improve home ownership in the United States, which was at 64% in 1994. President Bill Clinton and his administration made it a goal to combat the discrimination of mortgage lenders. President George W. Bush also looked to improve home ownership amongst the United States population. In 2003, his administration passed the Dream Down Payment Initiative, which would provide first-time low-income home buyers the funds for closing costs and down payments. This was in addition to tax policies that were used to protect the capital gains realized from the sale of homes. While they seem positive on surface level, these policies would prove to contribute to the reckless behavior in the financial sector leading up to the crisis of 2008-2009. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, two large mortgage agencies, were incentivized to join the securitization process of subprime mortgages, which first started in 1997. Because they wanted greater rates of securitization of these mortgages, credit standards began to be more lenient, allowing more and more individuals to be accepted for these loans. Before these government policies, the requirements lenders had included a 20% down payment in cash as a minimum, having to demonstrate the ability to pay mortgages with no more than 30% of monthly income, proof of a positive net worth, and the house appraisal needing to be 15% greater than the mortgage. After these government policies, however, the standards across the board became loosened, required down payments dropped to 3% of the home's value, and then declined even further to 0%. 103 mortgages, where lenders paid the closing costs, started to be offered to more and more borrowers. Additionally, the financial information provided by potential borrowers be began to lose credibility as they were incentivized to overstate figures by the lenders. Further, many credit rating agencies, specifically Moody's, Standard & Poor's, and Fitch also became more lenient as well. Mortgage-backed securities were consistently receiving AAA and AA credit ratings without being properly analyzed. It would be later exposed that the management of some of these agencies directed their analysts to behave in this manner. As alluded to earlier, financial institutions were motivated to securitize subprime mortgages and essentially sought to approve as many as possible. Because they did not fear of any repercussions, lenders continued to approve almost anyone applying for a mortgage for their own benefit. As the government intended, home ownership did increase to 68% in the country by 2008, and the housing market entered a bull market never seen before as a result, with the average house price in the United States increasing by over 100%, so it more than doubled. With lenders remaining aggressive, the securitization process resumed to be profitable for the financial institutions. With lenders continuing their aggressive strategies, the securitization process resumed to be very profitable for these financial institutions. 
However, by 2006, some issues within the subprime mortgage market started to become apparent. According to a report from Meredith Whitney in 2005, over the course of a decade, the subprime mortgage market grew from $90 billion to $530 billion, an increase of over 400%. In this report, Whitney concluded that the lenders with exposure to this industry would see tremendous losses across the board that would contribute to a domino effect of corporate insolvencies similar to what we witnessed post-1998. Now let's get into the ethical issue of what Bear Stearns did. The high-grade fund executed most of its trades with Bear Stearns as its broker-dealer. Because of a potential conflict of interest, there were a number of compliance standards put in place. These standards required the fund to have independent board members who would have to approve all trades with Bear Stearns before they were executed. Any violation of this rule should have resulted in significant consequences for Bear Stearns Asset Management and Ralph Chalfi. However, Chalfi would consistently fail to comply with these rules and in 2008, 18% of the fund's trades came without any approval from an independent board member. Three years later, by 2006, 76% of trades received no approval prior to execution. Of the roughly 2,300 total trades executed with Bear Stearns Asset Management, High Grade Fund received no approval on 47% of them. So out of the 2,300, roughly over 1,000 of these trades were not approved by an independent board member. So we see here the compliance issue that this hedge fund was partaking in. Because of a constant disregard for the compliance policy, Bear Stearns enacted a moratorium on trading with the high-grade fund in 2006. Because of this, the high-grade fund lost its main source of liquidity, which meant they were no longer able to trade asset-backed securities or repo securities with Bear Stearns. Additionally, the moratorium resulted in less oversight from Bear Stearns' management over the high-grade fund. This meant that senior management did not supervise the investment decisions of Ralph Chalfie, and Matthew Tanine any longer. So Bear Stearns did this to be like, hey guys, you need to be put in check. You need to comply with our standards. But at the same time, they kind of loosened their restrictions because there's no, there's no one supervising the two of them anymore. So they have free reign to do whatever they want to make up the source of liquidity that they lost with Bear Stearns. So you can see that it does open up a door for some, some shadiness to occur. Due to losing their main line of liquidity, the two hedge fund managers decided to create new hedge funds in an effort to draw in lines of credit from other lenders to purchase more mortgage-backed securities. In August of 2006, the high-grade fund split into two, or 37% of high-grade fund, or $560 million of assets, became a new fund called the Enhanced Leveraged Fund, also known as ELF. This fund promised investors superior returns through the use of leverage with only quote-unquote limited additional risk. In addition to this, Matthew Tanine successfully secured a $400 million line of credit for the new fund. This was achieved by promising the bank that the fund would only invest in securities with very high credit rating. Later that year, the two managers created another fund called Rampart, to which they sold over $500 million of illiquid CDOs from their other two existing funds. Now having three funds established, Ralph Chaffee and Matthew Tanine believe they took the proper measures to offset the moratorium. Unfortunately for these managers, the subprime mortgage market saw a massive decline in February of 2007. Over a year, several financial institutions had negative reports in regards to these securities. On February 7th, New Century Financial Corporation, a real estate investment trust and mortgage lender, canceled an earnings call and consequently realized an almost 
40% drop in its stock price. On that same day, HSBC increased its loan loss provisions for non-performing mortgages. Two weeks later, on February 21st, Novastar Financial, another mortgage lender, reported a surprising loss for their fiscal fourth quarter and projected that it might have to suspend its dividend indefinitely, resulting in an over a 40% drop in its stock price. Chaffee and Tanin were starting to get nervous because they had their own hedge funds here holding all these assets, holding these collateralized debt obligations and mortgage-backed securities, and they're seeing all of these other financial firms reporting such big losses because they were so invested in this market. So the two of them began to consider scaling back the size of some of their positions within their portfolio. On February 27th, a week after Novastar Financial reported that it might have to suspend its dividend, Barclays Bank reached out to Matthew Tanin. So Barclays Bank was the bank that provided Tanin with this new line of liquidity. The bank asked him to provide them with a written monthly report for the enhanced leverage fund. Matthew Tanin was put in a very difficult situation because of promises that he made earlier. Tanin would have had a very difficult time disclosing that the fund would see a negative return for the month of February. For one, Tanin had written an email to Barclays on February 19th, which is roughly a little bit over a week before Barclays asked for this monthly performance report. He stated that you will be happy to know that we are having our best month ever this February. Our hedges are working beautifully. We were up 1.6% in January and are up 2% so far in February. So it's kind of easy to see why Barclays could have been under the impression that the month was going very well for the fund. In addition to this, Tanin and Chaffee had been dishonest to their investors. They've been blatantly lying. On a monthly basis, the two managers would provide investors with a performance disclosure, making claims that 90% of the fund's assets had been invested in very high credit ratings, either AAA or AA credit ratings. A year prior, the fund told investors that only 30% of its assets were in asset-backed securities and only 15% was invested in subprime mortgages. A few months later in July, they stated that these percentages were 50.5% and 6% respectively. However, in a later congressional hearing about this matter, a managing partner at Heyman Capital, Kyle Bass, testified that this fund essentially had its entire portfolio invested in the subprime mortgage market. So they basically ensured investors that they were not being too risky they're not being too careless yeah we're not overexposed to the subprime mortgage market when in fact they were they they essentially had the entire portfolio invested in a single market a risky market no less and for those of you who knows what who knows what uh, happened in 2008-2009 you'll know that being invested in the subprime mortgage market solely was definitely not a good idea looking back in retrospect Tanin and Chalfi were put in the position of, okay, how, what, how do we proceed? What do we do here? Do we tell Barclays? Do we continue to lie? Well, ultimately, according to court records, Matthew Tanin and Ralph Chalfi chose not to be transparent with Barclays Bank and the investors of the Enhanced Leverage Fund. In June of 2007, Barclays Bank filed a civil lawsuit against Bear Stearns Asset Management, Tanin, and Chalfi for compensatory and punitive damages as a result of breaching their fiduciary duties as hedge fund managers. Tanin and Chalfi would ultimately be proved innocent in a court of law, but the ramifications, the consequences of their actions were still felt by the financial sector. The demise of the enhanced leverage fund and the high grade fund would initiate the fall of Bear Stearns and be the first domino to fall in the financial crisis of 2008. JP Morgan would actually go on to buy Bear Stearns assets. Bear Stearns approached the Federal Reserve Bank of New York for a cash loan of $25 billion. This was eventually denied and JP Morgan would go on to offer to buy the company 
for $2 per share, which is a significant discount from what it was being traded at just a year prior. In this offer, the Federal Reserve would guarantee $30 billion in mortgage-backed securities as part of the deal. Ultimately, the deal would be increased to $10 per share, which was still a significant discount because the company was trading for over $170 a year before this. So you would think, wow, JP Morgan got a deal. That's, that was a great deal. What a great move by JP Morgan. How can they, they must have loved the, what happened. This is actually not the case. Despite the big discount, JP Morgan Chase CEO, Jamie Dimon would go on to regret the decision. He stated that the deal resulted in his company spending billions of dollars to close out a number of failed trades and to settle up aforementioned litigation against the firm. In a 2008 letter to shareholders, Jamie Dimon wrote, quote, under normal conditions, the price we ultimately paid for Bear Stearns would have been considered low. We were not buying a house. We were buying a house on fire. So you can see here that, yes, it looks good on the surface, but the more you looked into it, the worse it became. The reason why it was so cheap was because no external parties really knew how bad the financial situation of the company was. It's also worth noting that JP Morgan would go on to buy Washington Mutual, another investment firm, rather soon after. So the total cost of both acquisitions would cost JP Morgan about $19 billion dollars when it, you include fines and settlements. In addition to Diamond having, you know, some regrets about the deal, many were very critical about the government's involvement in this deal. I think it's worth noting. As alluded to earlier, the Federal Reserve's $30 billion guarantee made the acquisition of Bear Stearns even a possibility for JP Morgan. And this really raised the question of should the government be involved in bailouts of this nature when we're supposed to have a free market capitalist economy? And the 2008-2009 financial crisis saw a lot of these questions arise because you saw a number of bailouts across the board. There were numerous bailouts in the financial sector, the automotive sector, and this could be an episode that we, Nick and I might explore at a future episode. Lastly, as previously touched on, this was the first domino to fall of the financial crisis of 2008. Later that year, Lehman Brothers, one of the largest investment banks in the world, would file for bankruptcy. To this day, so we're in 2021 when I'm recording this video. So 13 years after the fall of Lehman Brothers is still the largest corporate bankruptcy in American history with close to $700 billion in assets at the time of its bankruptcy. It's argued that the fall of Lehman Brothers was exacerbated by the fall of Bear Stearns because once Bear Stearns fell, many investors were on high alert and started to question the financials of other companies within the financial industry. So many people were starting to become, you know, investigators, if you will, regarding the financial statements of other financial firms. So it could be argued that this whole collapse of Lehman Brothers, their, you know, their risky business was somewhat exposed much earlier than it would have been because of the fall of Bear Stearns. And that was the fall of Bear Stearns. I think the fall of Bear Stearns was a very interesting uh, concept to cover because we don't really talk about Bear Stearns. We don't really talk about enough what companies did fail leading up to 2008, 2009. Like we talk about Lehman Brothers. We speak about Enron early 2000s. Bear Stearns kind of gets lost in the mix. Bear Stearns was one of the biggest financial firms in the United States. And we should contextualize that. We should understand what they did wrong so we can learn from their mistakes. I know people listening to this podcast, they probably want to be in the financial industry. They want to be working in the financial sector, hey, maybe you want to run a hedge fund. Who, who, who knows? I just hope that these kinds of stories kind of give you, kind of gives you an idea of what you shouldn't do as businessmen and women. I feel like stories like this are very important because it shows how 
a lack of ethics can lead to significant consequences, right? Like although Chalfi and Tanin were not found guilty of what they did wrong or what they did rather, they still have that stigma and they still have to carry that burden around with them that they ran a hedge fund, multiple hedge funds, and one of the biggest financial firms in the world to the ground. So I think we should learn from the mistakes of people before us. We should not let something like this happen again, whether you're an investor, the hedge fund manager, learn from their mistakes, act prudent, do your fiduciary duties. And if you're an investor, always do your homework. Don't invest in something that you don't know anything about. If you can't explain it to a five-year-old, don't invest it. That's pretty much the takeaway here. But that's pretty much it, guys. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Common Sense Finance. Like I said in the beginning of the episode, if you're listening on a podcast platform, please drop a five-star review if you're on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the podcast regardless of what platform you're on. If you're watching this as a video on YouTube, guys, like, comment, and subscribe. I would really appreciate that. Any support that you guys give us would mean a ton to me. It helps Common Sense Finance grow as a platform, reach new people, and educate people on personal finance and promote financial literacy, which is Common Sense Finance end goal. It's my end goal at the end of the day. So I'd really appreciate that. But yeah, guys, until next time, I'm Anthony. This is Common Sense Finance and peace.